If you were listening closely, you would have spotted those tricky verses in the middle of that last reading. Spirits in prison, how did we get to Noah? What's Noah got to do with baptism? There are some challenges in this passage, uh, and it would be possible to spend the whole of today's talk digging right into those tricky verses and working out their possible meanings and stuff, but we're not going to. Here's the thing. Peter, the fisherman turned preacher who wrote this letter that we're reading, he thought those tricky verses would be helpful for the argument that he's making. So today we're going to make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees. We're going to look at what Peter is doing in this part of the letter. And for a little bit in the middle of the talk, we'll think about the hard verses. We're going to start by thinking about pressure. When you're under pressure... It's easy to lose perspective. When your kids are yelling at you, when the work deadline has just been shifted forward, when the day's schedule is chockers but then the car won't start, it's easy to lose perspective and to act out of line. It's easy under those circumstances to lose your grip on what's really important, to end up acting in ways that actually don't match your identity and your values. That's what pressure does to you. And as you might have heard already, the book of 1 Peter, which we're reading, was written to a group of Christians who were under pressure. That's their context. They were a tiny little group with no influence on society or government. The Roman citizens around them treated with suspicion because they wouldn't worship the gods of the empire. Their Jewish friends and family treated them with disgust because they dared to worship a man, Jesus Christ, as their God. The readers of this letter were a people under pressure. And when you're under pressure, it's easy to lose perspective and act out of line. So what Peter's doing in today's section is focusing his readers on an important task and on the perspective that's needed to pursue that task. And let me say up front, this is a task that we share and a perspective that we need. He names the task in verse 15 of chapter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. In their context, it wasn't likely to be a question of polite curiosity that came their way. Oh, I see you worship Jesus as your God. How interesting. Do tell me about that. That's not really the situation they were in. These believers were under attack. They weren't receiving curious, polite questions. They were receiving accusations. And the kind of answer they would need to give was a defence. Like you'd give in a court of law when you're on trial, when you're under pressure. That is the task that they faced and they were called to. But as we've seen, when you're under pressure, it's easy to lose perspective and act out of line. So through this section of the letter, Peter keeps reminding his readers of the perspective that's going to be needed to pursue this task. And when you boil it down, the perspective they need and we need is that Jesus is on his throne. Jesus, who suffered righteously, is on his throne. That's the perspective that's needed to succeed with the task we have. But there's one final ingredient in the recipe for this section. 
Sometimes when you define a task, you have to explain not just what to do, but what not to do. Say I'm giving you directions to go somewhere and I say, go straight through the roundabout. But I might know that all the signs at that roundabout are going to tempt you to go a different way. So I might need to emphasize it, say, don't go left, don't go right, go straight through the roundabout. And it's the same here. Through this section, Peter mentions a bunch of mistakes that must be avoided. They're kind of anti-examples. If you do these things, you're failing to do the task that we're called to. So what I'd like to do in this talk is walk through these three mistakes that Peter mentions and see how keeping the right perspective can help us avoid those mistakes and stay focused on the task. Our first mistake to look at, the first mistake that must be avoided, is retreat. Have a look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? That's kind of a baseline expectation. It's frequently true. Drive under the speed limit and you won't get fined. But there are exceptions to this general rule. Peter goes on, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. That's a big call, isn't it? Peter is quoting what he had heard Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And speaking of prophets, Peter then goes on to quote one of those persecuted prophets. Isaiah was a prophet back from the 8th century B.C., He was harassed and eventually killed by the people and the kings of Israel who did not want to hear his message. And Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8, the passage we read as our Old Testament reading today. Here's the bit he's referring to. In Isaiah 8, the Lord is giving a direction to Isaiah as he conducts his unpopular ministry. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. The Lord says to Isaiah, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear, the one you are to dread. Peter says that advice to the prophet Isaiah back then applies to Christians now. As they face pressure and opposition from Jews and Romans alike. Don't fear them. Don't be frightened. What would fear lead to? It would lead to retreat. Running away. That's the first mistake that must be avoided. It's a way of giving in to the pressure. Retreating in fear. Keeping your head down. Keeping your mouth shut. Even denying all knowledge of Jesus if push comes to shove. The exhortation is don't do that. Don't retreat because you fear people. Instead, fear God, respect him, care about what he thinks. But in his quote from Isaiah, Peter has done something very bold. Peter has changed the Bible. Don't try this at home, folks. 
Isaiah 8 says, regard the Lord Almighty as holy. But 1 Peter 3.15, quoting Isaiah, says, revere Christ as Lord. Now, revere or regard as holy, they are the same thing, the same word. But Peter applies this to Jesus. He's pointing them to the perspective they need. Jesus is on his throne and his throne is God's throne. Sometimes you might hear the claim that the idea of Jesus being divine was made up by Christian theologians centuries after the fact. You hear claims that the first generation of believers thought of Jesus as a good teacher and a good example to follow. But this verse is one of many examples in the New Testament that shows us that early Christians worshipped Jesus as God. They saw him as worthy of the same worship as the Lord Almighty. Jesus and the Father are distinct persons, but they're united in their divinity, equally worthy of worship. Jesus is on his throne, and that throne is God's throne. That's the perspective that they and we need to keep hold of to stay focused on our task and avoid the mistake of retreat. As we read on to verse 15, we get to the verse where Peter gives them the task. Always be prepared to give an answer or a defence to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But he then immediately brings up the second mistake that must be avoided. But do this with gentleness and respect. The task we're called to is to give a defence. And if we find ourselves on the attack, playing offence, then we're getting it wrong. When you're under pressure, you can lose perspective and act out of line. And I think it can be easy for Christians today, unsettled by the way Western culture is cutting itself loose from its Christian background, it's easy for us to lose perspective and go on the attack to speak with ridicule and arrogance towards contemporary culture rather than gentleness and respect. On some issues, Christians find ourselves in agreement with the political right. On other issues, we find ourselves in agreement with the political left. But neither the vocal right nor the vocal left of secular politics are known for speaking with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect are not widely found in the political world. We must not be drawn into that mode of engagement. If we speak with ridicule and arrogance about those who oppose us in various ways, we are no longer suffering for doing good. We've moved into suffering for doing evil. Look in verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And here comes the perspective. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus wasn't afraid to say unpopular things, sometimes in a pretty forthright manner. But he never crossed the line into attacking his opponents to make himself look like the winner. 
As he was crucified, the criminal on one side of him said to the criminal on the other side of him, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus suffered righteously, taking the sins of the world upon himself on the cross. But although he was put to death in the body, he has now been made alive in or by the Spirit, and he's taken his throne in heaven. Jesus shows you where righteous suffering leads. It leads to glory. And that's a perspective to hold on to. But this is the point of the passage where we get into some bumpy territory. Verse 19, we suddenly have Jesus making proclamation to imprisoned spirits. And then we somehow jump to the story of Noah. And from Noah, we then somehow get to a discussion of baptism. It's pretty hard to work out. Uh, respected and experienced and highly trained Bible scholars ponder it and work with it and come to just very tentative conclusions. But let's remember that Peter wrote these verses because he thought they'd be helpful in the argument he was making. There's lots that could be said here, lots of possible interpretations we could consider. Let me just give you my best guess. I'm inclined to think that this is talking about Jesus declaring his resurrection victory to the spiritual world. It's unclear who the imprisoned spirits are. I don't think Jesus was inviting them to salvation. I think he was declaring that the forces of evil have been overcome by his death and resurrection. And Peter includes this in his letter because it gives us the perspective we need that Jesus is on his throne. For reasons that are hazy to us, the imprisoned spirits make Peter think back to the Noah story. And he he mentions Noah because the story of Noah has a bunch of resonances for the little group of Christians he's writing to. Noah and his family were a small group, just as Peter's readers were a small group of Christians. Noah and his family were surrounded by rebellion, just as Christians are. Noah was convinced that God's judgment was coming, and this is the Christian conviction too. As Noah announced this truth, he was ridiculed. Same for us. Noah had a way of escaping God's judgment by trusting God's message. And so do we. In the end, the scoffers suffered judgment, but the small group of believers in Noah's time were saved. As a bunch of resonances. In Noah's day, the separation of the faithful from the rebellious involved water. And this is the case for Christians when it comes to baptism. When we get to verse 21, he's finished talking about Noah, he's now talking about Christians again. We need to think a bit about what he means when he says, baptism now saves you. Baptism is a ceremony involving water. Uh, it was commanded by Jesus. But of course, the ceremony and the water don't save you. In the Bible, baptism is synonymous with entrusting yourself to Jesus. And so if you want to entrust yourself to Jesus today, get baptised. Baptism is about uniting yourself to Jesus so that his death counts as your death. And his resurrection to new life is the guarantee of your resurrection to eternal life. Peter says baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. We've been through some bumpy territory in these verses, but it all leads back to the perspective we need. Jesus is on his throne. And he got there by suffering righteously, not by going on the attack. When we get to chapter 4, we see the third and final mistake that must be avoided. Let's read chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. When the pressure is on, it's easy to lose perspective and act out of line. Under stress, humans are susceptible to self-soothing through the misuse of alcohol and sex. Christians are not immune. What a tragedy it is if the pressure that comes from confessing the name of Jesus leads you to sin. But it can happen. The pressure of suffering can make Christians give in to the same sins that their opponents revel in. To avoid this trap, Peter urges us to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Jesus, who suffered in the body. I think this is an invitation to ponder the purpose of Jesus' suffering and to have that same mindset about our own suffering. Jesus suffered righteously for the purpose of defeating sin. So, let your suffering be an occasion of battle against sin too. Not on the cosmic scale like Jesus did, but in the face of temptations in your life. Drunkenness and porn and the rest of it are a normal choice for those who don't know God. But if you belong to Jesus, they don't fit with your identity at all. Living that kind of life will completely undermine your task of giving a defence of the hope that you have in Jesus. You might get ridiculed and abused for staying clear of such things. But Peter again points to the perspective we need for our task. Jesus is on his throne. Chapter 4, verse 5, he is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's on his throne and his throne is the judgment throne. The day is coming when he will hold evildoers to account and welcome his faithful people into the life of his kingdom. Without perspective, we can avoid the, avoid the mistake of giving in to sin. We have an important task we are called to. And when pressure comes, we need to maintain perspective so we don't end up acting out of line. I wonder which of these three mistakes, I wonder which of these three mistakes that Peter mentions you are most in danger of. What's most likely to stop you from faithfully giving a defence of the hope you have in Jesus?
Are you more likely to retreat in fear? Are you more likely to go on the attack and forget about gentleness and respect? Are you more in danger of giving in to sin when the pressure is on? Whatever our vulnerabilities are, all of us need to maintain that perspective that Peter keeps pointing to of Jesus on his throne. The throne that he got to by suffering righteously. He is our saviour. He is our example. He's the ruler of all and judge of the living and the dead. And he gives us the precious task of speaking that saving truth to the world around us. I'd like to finish with a little story that's shared by the writer Don Carson. He talks about someone he knows. He says, I know a doctor in a North African country who has served for many years now in clinics that minister to Muslims. Once he was treating a woman who had a deep gash in her arm. As he worked, he explained how the wound had to be carefully cleaned to get rid of as many germs as possible to prevent infection. She listened, paused for a moment, and then commented, it's not just my arm. I wish I had a clean heart. Carson asks, now what would you say? What would you say if you had a degree in Muslim apologetics? Might you be tempted to point out that the problem with Islam is there is no atoning sacrifice that's offered to take away sin? And that Christianity, by contrast, handles the dirt we have in our heart by providing a saviour to take it away. Might be tempted to say all that. But this doctor personalised his response. He testified to his own hope. What he said was this. Oh, I know just what you mean. I've had such a dirty heart myself. And then I met someone who took it all away. Would you like me to tell you about him? With gentleness and respect. So that no one could criticise him as a triumphalist, he gently pointed her to Christ. May we do the same. We're going to sing now and point ourselves to the perspective that is needed. The perspective that is needed for our task of speaking of the hope we have, is that Jesus is on his throne. He is crowned with many crowns. Let's sing this together.